This is Jude Angelini. I wrote Hummingbird, and I'm here with Jim McDermott, and he wrote Bitter is the Wind. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for talking to me. Real honor. Yeah, well, I ditto. I feel the same. I feel the same way. Exactly. Um, it's it's kind of cool. I feel like uh, your book and my book intersect in that we kind of talk about the the working class experience. Is is that something you're familiar with? Is, did you come from that or? I grew up that? in a small town on a dirt road, uh, town, a town of 150 people in upstate New York, and there was a blinking light and a gas station uh, and a post office, a little post office, and I worked at the gas station a little bit in high school. And so uh, it's it's I think we're similar in that we come from these working class backgrounds, and we're just trying to figure out how to open up our worlds, right, and find out what's out there. It's funny you say that. Like, I didn't realize uh... – I'm from Michigan myself, and you know, I didn't realize how. I didn't think I was country until I moved out to uh, Los Angeles, and then I was like, "Oh, they don't have any dirt roads out here." <laughs> to your point, I was like, "Oh, they don't have dirt roads." Oh, this is weird. Like, I, I, I thought everybody spoke weird. I thought everyone talks really proper. It, it was something that my ear wasn't used to. Um, but yeah, it was. That was definitely. And right now I'm talking to you. I'm in Nashville, and it's even more country than uh, Michigan. So, so there it is. Uh, but yeah, well, that's I'm why you're of... awake this early. I wondered how you'd be up so early in the morning on the West Coast, where I am. I'm in Portland, Oregon, right now, where I live and work. And I work as a corporate attorney, uh, business yeah. litigation. So uh, I just got back from New York. I had some meetings there on on some cases, and. Uh, and so I, I've really kind of started on Main Street and have ended up somewhat like uh, a Wall Street lawyer. I used to work on Wall Street early in my career. And so I go back and forth between these two worlds on a daily basis, and it's fascinating. So Bitter is the Wind is kind of – it's like uh, – it's fiction, but it's autobiographical too. Huh? You're pulling from your life. You're always pulling from your life, I think. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, – you know, I did grow up in a small town. I did work on farms and gas stations and on an assembly line, but I was never suspended from school like the protagonist. I was never arrested. I didn't deal drugs, right. and and right. Uh, you know, my my mother is alive and well. So there are definitely a number of differences, but you draw from who you are. You know, when I read Hummingbird, uh, I thought I sat back and thought it's sad, it's funny, it's got more sex than Hunter S. Thompson and more drugs than Charles Bukowski. <laughs> That's like <laughs> your just, life. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just some beat writers. I, to me, it's like beat writer stuff uh, nowadays, and it's just going to be a little bit turned up as things, I think things get more extreme over the years. Uh, you know, what was what was taboo in the 60s, 70s is now the norm, if you will. Uh what, what was Do you that really like? think it's was, the norm? I don't know. Like, it's my norm. You know, like it's 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 my norm. It's what I'm used to. It, it's kind of similar to to you. You know, you're a lawyer, and I hang out with uh, these really high functioning individuals, at least in their workplace. You know, like straight, you know, self made dudes, millionaires, uh, bankers, hedge fund guys, and they're they're all kind of maniacs 
in in a, in one way or another. You know, I, I got I got I got people around me that are that are super high up in in places that are uh, you know functioning dope things. You know, everyone does coke in Los Angeles except for me. It's it's kind of crazy. The I feel like half of I feel like half of Hollywood is fueled on just doing coke, and the other half is NAA. So to me, to perhaps ketamine is a bit of a a niche drug, but even that's making a even that's coming into the the public consciousness right now, and they're having these conversations about uh, how ketamine's used to cure depression, which is kind of why I was doing it. You know, like one of those. I found ketamine because it was just, it was straight out of pragmatism. I was like, this drug gives me the best high with the least uh, hangover. So therefore I can do my show and continue making money. Right. Cause you, you want to live, you want to be, you're clearly driven and you want to be successful and known and have an impact and try to shape culture. But yeah, you know, which is how I feel about myself. Uh, but I don't do any drugs. <sighs> My friend just was like, we were having a burger in some little dive bar here in Nashville, and she was like, why don't you just stop doing drugs? And I was like, I don't I was just like, I don't want to. I don't know what else to do. I don't want to. Like, this is, it's kind of what I like. And it's, it, and it's probably one of those deals where, like, you quit doing drugs, you meet something cool, and then, then you move forward in life. Uh, sometimes you got to let go to get something. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet. Um, you you said you worked you said you worked on farms factories how did that blue collar work I think help you in going through law school and as an attorney well it uh, it really made me want to use my mind and I came from a, a family where I was the first kid to uh, go to college, graduate college, uh, and I'm the oldest of three boys. And so my parents have been fan- fantastically successful in educating uh, their three kids and getting them out into the world. And that's like what the American dream is, where the next generation does better than the previous generation. So I feel like, uh, you know, in this more rarefied business world, they're there are not a lot of people with working class backgrounds. So that's why I started on this project 25 years ago, where I thought, why I'm in the first class cabin of airplanes flying around the country, staying at five-star hotels instead of campgrounds. And, and, uh, then I still had a pickup truck. I was driving around. I was living in Washington, DC, working for the biggest law firm there as a young lawyer. And I thought, why are there no people from my background in these business meetings in, in these courtrooms around America? And uh, then I'd go home and visit the people I worked with on the assembly line and, and hear the stories about the arrests, the fights, you know, sometimes the deaths. And, and uh, I was struck by the stark contrast between these two worlds and a world that could have been my world. Uh, and why wasn't it my world and why is it these people's world? And so I just decided, you know, I'm going to create a couple of working class characters, a father, a son, and give them, give those guys a wise widow because everybody needs a little guidance in life and give them a dog because everybody needs some unconditional love and send them out in search of the American dream. 
<laughs> and I worked on it for 25 years and, you know, and, uh, so I'm happy it, happy it really came out. And then I've been on a couple of book tours and I'm talking about it and it's, it's just been really fun. I think in a way it's, it's deepened my understanding of the human condition and the human character, which has made me a better lawyer. Um, it's more relatable to juries, more relatable to judges from similar backgrounds and more and more deciders in America who are judges, uh, as we have a much more multiracial, uh, and multi-gender culture we have that being reflected on the bench. So you have a lot of first generation people like us from different cultures who are judges now. It's fascinating, but I find it's more relatable to them. Are those judges more forgiving or less forgiving? I'm just kind of curious. More forgiven in some things and less forgiven on other things. You know, it just depends on the background. Everybody comes, I think, to the to the job as, as much as you try to be impartial, but you've got your own cultural biases and you try to set them aside and some do better than others. Yeah, but it's uh, it, it, it's been it's been a contrast that I found when I was younger. I was really hard to manage going rapidly back and forth between these worlds. But I find as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm much better at it. It's kind of crazy for me. I've almost, uh, my job, I'm submerged, you know, I'm 10 toes deep in that, this world, in that world, because I'm on a hip hop station. I, I, it's like, I talk, I'm still, I'm still the mouthpiece of working in lower class. Um, but in my, in, in my private life now, I have divorced myself of that really, uh, you know, I live in a, I live in, you know, a hipster, fancy neighborhood. I live in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. I hang out with college-educated people, most of my friends who I didn't grow up with. And, you know, I got a couple couple cats I know from from Pontiac that moved, that moved out to L.A. that I still kick it with. But everybody else is just this new group of people. And, there's, and it's... For me, it's almost survival because, like, I, I got to be around someone that's doing better than me. Uh, I, I need to be around that just to just to strive. It's it it, it hurts to go home sometimes, and you, you see you see your folks doing doing poorly or doing the same thing, or you hearing the same excuses. And uh, as much compassion as I have for them, I don't feel like I'm there yet. So, like, I can't even. I don't I, like. It's, it's fucking crazy, man. Like part of me just doesn't even want to be around that. Like I can do it maybe once or twice a year, but every, I don't, when I go home, when I go home, I don't see him at all the time, you know? Uh, Cause with, with poverty, there are cycles of poverty and you know, there's some of the stuff is just some, you know, it's, you can't point to one thing, but sometimes it's just bad decisions. You're seeing cats make these awful decisions over and over again. Uh, not helping them in the long run and you can you can be a cheerleader but shit man it's tough to sit there and watch a homeboy smoke a blunt on the on the couch in the middle of the day and you know complain about how life isn't fair you know i'm like all right bro well good to see you let's i'll, I'll, I'll check you i'll see you later bro and i wait another year and then i go see him do you go see him after a year because if you want to, or you're compelled to, or you just feel guilty about it if you didn't do it? It's a little bit of, it's one of those deals. It's like, 
it's home, you know, like they are home, you know, you go like you miss, you miss them. You miss, they're, they're, they're still my friends. They're still my homies. We've just, we've just grown apart. Uh, there is a touch of guilt. Like, man, damn, dude, you've been home three times. You haven't, you haven't gone to holler at your homeboy. Go holler at your homeboy. Uh, that don't forget where you came from. Uh, don't forget where you came from. Go, go see these cats. But there's been times where it's, you know, it's frustrating because you'll, you, you'll try to line up some stuff for them and then they don't, you know, they don't go get the money and you're like, Fucking much. What are we doing here? You know. Uh, yeah, you're you're trying to help, and it's you just can't. And but I, I feel I feel almost empty if I don't go back to my hometown once or once a year or once every other year. I feel like uh, to me it's like going to Las Vegas. You know, you, I go right. to Vegas, and and I I look forward to going. I want to go, but after two or three days, I'm ready to leave. But I've had a good time yeah. when I'm there, <laughs> and I feel everybody's got a little bit of a love-hate relationship with with their hometown, and uh, you know, I I just feel, uh, I, but I would feel empty if I didn't go back. I I got to go back to it's near Poughkeepsie, New York, is probably the closest area, which is halfway yeah. between Albany and, and New York City uh, on the Hudson River. And there's a Barnes and Noble there, and I went back this past summer and did a book event there, and it was great to see so many people uh, from my hometown and they came out and, you know, a lot of these people had never read a novel in their life. And I, I don't know, they they probably bought mine, but whether they've read it or they will read it, hard to know. But, uh, you know, we're at the bar, we're closing the bar and one of my buddies is getting in a fight cause he's cut off and I have to intervene and get him outside before the police get huh. there. And, you know, it's the same, <laughs> same old shit, right? Just same old, same old stuff, you know, same old stuff. But yeah, you know, I had a great time and, and, uh, you know, I'd want to, I'd want to, you know, go back again in the near future because it keeps everything fresh in your mind. Like I get up this morning and I, and I I'm, I'm sitting here in a, in a suit and tie in my office and, uh, in the corner office of a high rise in Portland, Oregon, but I have in my closet, my old mobile shirt from the gas station I worked at when I was in high school that says Jim on the over on the, the patch on one chest and mobile on the yeah. patch on the other chest. And I just keep it as a reminder, you know, stay grounded. Fucking a it's, uh, uh, it's funny that you, I remember when you were uh, earlier in this conversation, when you was like, it just made you want to work with your mind after working with your hands. And my daughter, uh, her first job was at McDonald's and she was complaining about it. And I was like, good. Remember that feeling. Remember, <laughs> like, remember this feeling. Re- remember the way that paycheck looks like there's more out here for you. Like you don't want to do that. A few years ago, like I was, uh, I was going a bit crazy, just working, just doing the radio show. Cause you know, you know, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but like, I came up doing working with my hands, you know, window cleaner, busting tables, that type of stuff. There, there's almost instant gratification there. There's the window was clean or the window was dirty, but you scrub it, you clean. Now it's clean. Not when I do a radio show, like I'm just in a box. So it's a different kind of work. And I wanted to get back to working with my hands and just kind of doing some stuff. So I picked up a job. I didn't need to, but I just Andy Kaufman that shit and started 
busting tables. Jim, bro, let me tell you, like, them them paychecks at the end of the week was looking paltry as shit. <laughs> like, they look, <laughs> they, they look crappy as hell, and it just made me grateful. I was like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, I'm fucking, you know, I make that in a fucking hour. You know, like, this is awesome what I have, be grateful for what you, for what you have and, um, strive to get more. Yeah. It's funny that you would go back to try to actually do a job you did many, many years ago to get back to that, that feeling. Uh, I have no interest in doing that. (laughs) Look, um, it was, yeah, like, and I did it for eight months, too. It wasn't just like, oh, this is, you know, for a couple of weekends, I did it for eight months. I just kept going fucking four or five days a week over there for eight months. And I ended up quitting because the crazy shit was they were screwing us on tips. Like, they were fucking, because they were, uh, it was, it's a lot of, it was me and a lot of immigrant cats doing, busting the tables and, uh, when it was time, when it was time to tip out, them shit, them shits were light as hell, and they didn't want to talk shit because half of them weren't even there legally. So they got exploited, and I just left. I was like, all right, man, that was that. Wow, that was. The I wanted to ask you how. I want to ask you how you. Uh, so you grew up in Michigan, Bob Seger territory. Uh, obviously. I love them too, and and uh, I'm a Springsteen fan. I just I just saw two uh, two Springsteen on Ver- on Broadway shows this past weekend when I was in New York. I've heard, so I've heard nothing but good things about that show. Is it just it, the shit? It, it it is phenomenal, and I was in tears both nights. Uh, you know, one I, I went with a buddy one night, and then my wife flew in, and and uh, and uh, it was my 111th Springsteen show since the 70s. So uh, wow. I listen to Springsteen and what my wife calls Springsteen-related artists, Bob Seger, Mellencamp, George Thurgood. Uh, and uh, I, how does someone from Michigan with a working-class background get into hip-hop? Well, I grew up in a, I grew up in a, it was like 50-50 black, white neighborhood. And then when, or black, white, Mexican, like it was really an integrated neighborhood. Um, so when rap came, it, it landed when hip hop came, it landed right at my doorstep. You know, it wasn't like it was in my neighborhood as soon as it came out. And before, like, if you look at the kids from my neighborhood before that, like the white kids were, that were four years older than me, five years older than metal kids, they were fucking hashers, you know, Judas priest, all that stuff. Um, Sabbath. And when rap came, that was our subculture. That was our that was our punk rock. And that is that is how I it, mine mine wasn't like oh my brother was played basketball with black kids and they brought me these fucking these tapes to listen to like no dude this this wasn't like through AAU. I grew up around it. It was ubiquitous to me, and that was the crazy shit to the to the senior point. It was almost like, uh, it was like I was, we, we were, we were the, the working poor. Um, I, I fucking, I crunched the numbers, dude. Like I, I, cause I was kind of curious to see how much my mom was really, how much we were making like family income, uh, you know, and we, you know, it would have been a family of five making 20 grand a year out here now. 
and that's fucking nuts, you know, like, and that's working poor. Uh, but that, that I, is poverty line right around the poverty line. Yep. And it was one of those things where you're not quite poor enough to get the benefits. It really fucking sucked. You know what I mean? It was just like, couldn't get any, like we could get wick and shit, but not all the, you know, but cats had pride. So we stayed working or my mom stayed working. I was too young to work at the time. Uh, but with the Seeger shit, like it was, it it was almost like I had to go discover Seeger as opposed to discover rap. Like rap was rap was what we were listening to. Seeger was the music of the working class white people, and it was kind of like rednecky shit. But it was always around you, so I would reject it because I didn't want to be. I almost thought I was better than that, and then when I left Michigan, I realized. I wasn't better than that. And that's what I was considered to everybody else. And it really made me hold Seeger close to my heart because it was like, I'd be around all my little fucking, you know, I'd, I'd make it out and I'd, and I'd be around like these fucking Yale motherfuckers and they'd be shitting on Seeger. And to and that was like shitting on me. You know, I was shitting on my neighbor. I was shitting on, you know, I was shitting on people that had way, a way more similar experience with me than I had with with the Yale people and it really made me start really like blaming Bob Seeger. like I didn't listen to Seeger that much in Michigan but when I left Michi- Michigan he became he was like a totem for me he was he, he he was a soundtrack for me Hollywood Nights you know like I'm in Hollywood I'm a Midwest boy like I, I related to that and that's that's how I came around to a lot of that music. Um, you know, in the nineties and in the eighties, you weren't allowed to listen to four different kinds of genres. It was like, what are what are, you were de- defined by the music you listened to. And I was a hip hop kid. Um, as I got older, I was able to break those chains and really listen to a broader, a broader variety of music. What and and Springsteen is that that's like the East coast seeker right there, huh? Yeah, I, I would say that's an interesting way to to, to characterize him. I, I view him as, I guess, uh, I view Bruce as sort of deeper, richer. And what is what is fascinating to me about Bruce is as he's aged, he's sixty eight now, and I, I think Seeger is about the same age. Uh, yeah. And Bruce has uh, just continued to write. I think really relevant songs and music and he's continued to evolve and grow and deepen as a singer and a songwriter, uh, which is very, very rare in the music business because, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of these performers, I mean, they're by the time they're in their thirties, you know, they haven't really written any new music. You go to a Stones concert, you go to a who concert, you go to a Seeger concert really. And, you know, Bob is trying to write new music, but, nothing is really, and at least to me, as good as, you know, turn the page, night moves, you know, against the wind like a rock. I mean, he's got an amazing catalog when you go to one of his shows. I was supposed, he's supposed to be in Portland uh, next week, but he just can't, he just can't tell the rest of his tour. He's got a, he had a vertebrae issue and he just had surgery. So hopefully the tour will continue, but people are saying it could be the last tour. That's kind of why I've been trying to go see everybody, man. Just like these cats are getting old, and I think you're right about that. Uh, Springsteen continues to keep writing. I haven't, I don't, I don't have to be, and I'm gonna be all, I'm gonna keep it one thousand. Like I'm gonna 
like once people get past their prime, I kind of I stop listening for them. I, you know, like there's, I, I don't think it's fair to that artist, but man, even if Bob Seger drops a new album, I probably wouldn't check it out. I know it sounds crazy, but there it it's beyond just the songs. It's the way they were recorded. It, it's the sound of the seventies that is appealing to me. It's, it's it's a lot of times these artists are bigger than um they're bigger than just them it's they represent a whole movement to me your favorite bruce song fucking um it is down bound train <laughs> you know having read hummingbird that uh, makes sense to me there's a symmetry yeah. between your your memoir and some of the stories and 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 downbound trade, which is in a, a kind of a somewhat obscure Springsteen song uh, from the Born in the USA album, but um, yeah, yeah. There's an yeah. acoustic version of that song that he recorded for uh, Nebraska. You know, the solo acoustic dark album that came out. Uh, that, I, but but he put a more he put it to the band, just like he did with the song Born in the USA, which was. And originally recorded as an acoustic protest song, and he's now playing yeah. it that way uh, in, in the Broadway show. That's uh, that "Born in the USA" such an interesting song because uh, remember, didn't Reagan try to like glom onto that? And he was like, "No, that's not that's not for you," and he wouldn't let him use it. Am I am I, am I missed? Did some? There was a presidential right. candidate. Yeah. Um, that was a song that really, that really resonated with, with me because, uh, I, I grew up post Vietnam the same way a lot of these kids are growing up post nine 11, uh, with cats that were that served in, served in Vietnam coming back home. And as a young kid getting to see kind of the effects, you know, there was a lot of homeless cats, there was a lot of bums and crackheads that were ex nam dudes uh and you really got to see firsthand kind of what he was talking about i didn't get to live firsthand what he was talking about because i was a child but i even saw it and to me it, it resonated um that 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 record in particular like really kind of to that point really really got that blue collar vibe that really that that fucking Rust Belt vibe. I really related to that album. I remember my old man had played that one a lot. It was his jam. Yeah, it was for for us Springsteen fans from the '70s. It was the album that, in some ways, we didn't like because it really brought Bruce into worldwide fame, mainstream culture, and so he went from more intimate arenas to uh uh stadiums with that album and so it it made bruce more remote and removed on stage uh also the production the production was a bit different too did that did that bristle you at all because he kind of he kind of came into that 80s production on on that album uh, you know, yeah, it was more modern. I think I saw, I just saw it as, as more modern and that didn't really bother me, uh, you know, and I think there's some really good songs on that album, but I mean, it, to me, darkness on the edge of town, born to run. 
mean, those are the, like when I go back and want to listen to a whole unified album of Bruce's, that's what I put on. Like I'm going to drive for a couple of hours and, and that's, you know, I'll put on and listen to the whole album because Bruce was really trying to have an album that was a unified presentation of a theme and what he was trying to communicate at that time. And, uh, so that's what, and Born in the USA is a little more uh, poppy, splashy, uh, yeah. you know, but, um, but what did you think of uh, Petty's death? It's, you know, right in your backwoods. Yeah, that was another, um, uh, my sister and I were supposed to go to that show and my book was coming out that week and I was in New York, so I didn't get to go. She wanted to take me there for my birthday. Uh, so I never got to see Tom Petty. Um, Tom Petty, actually one of my favorite songs ever is that Free Fall. And, uh, Jeff, who was it? Jeff Lynn, I think, produced it. Yeah, hello, yeah. dude. Um, yep. And uh, he's another one, man. He, he I just really, he has, he has a, uh, Petty has such a conversational way with his lyrics that I really, that I really dug. Um, it was, yeah, he's a real, was, another real sort of white trash kind of performer, but I loved running down a dream and, and, yeah. uh, probably the waiting, uh, maybe refuge. The hardest part. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the yearning, it, the longing, you know? Yeah, that's um that that fucking um yeah he's another Florida dude. Well, yeah, there's yeah he's he's from Gainesville, Florida. Yep, Central Florida. Yeah, like um, it, and Patty was kind of lucky enough to cross over um to like chicks and stuff like Patty as well. Like you can put him on. Like if I put on American Girl, like all the girls would be happy with that song. Uh, as opposed to other, you know, maybe a Thoroughgood or a Seeker just doesn't get that reception that that Petty gets. I remember I was fucking some hipster chick and like Mellencamp came on and she was all bummed out. Like, turn this off. It sounds hokey. And it was Jack and Diana. Like, give me a fucking break. I don't know how much longer we can have to put on like some fucking noise music for it to be okay. Yeah, Mellencamp it's, it's funny. is another... Yeah, it's funny, like, how certain, uh, like, when I went to go see Bob Seger, it was, and I went to go see Seger in, in Pine Knob, which is north of Detroit, and it was a redneck event. It was very, it, it was, it's crazy how certain, certain musicians really separate themselves by class. It was a very redneck event. It was a lot, it was a lot. It, you could tell these. You could tell a lot of these cats saved up. Like that was a, that was rent for a lot of people to come see him in concert. And that that kind of made me think when you said uh, Springsteen on Broadway. I, like it, it's it's almost like this. It's like you've arrived, and but then at the same time, like half the people that you started writing your songs for can't even afford to go see you. I imagine. Yeah, the face value of the best ticket is eight hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, you want to sit front and center in the orchestra, eight fifty, uh, and the cheapest ticket is seventy-five. But 
but there's only a few of the $75 tickets and he does a lottery, uh, holds back 20 tickets, I think every night. And this is a 960 seat, uh, intimate. It's like, it's, it's like your high school gym, basically your old little high school gym in a small town. I mean, obviously beautiful theater, incredibly decorated. And the sound system was first rate, but you know, it's just really intimate, but you, you can't get in. And so you see, you see all these famous people there at the show. Right? I mean, it's yeah. you know, Howard Stern, Billy Joel. I mean, uh, Keith Urban, Nicole Kidman uh, was there on Saturday night and, you know, Tom Brokaw. I mean, it's just all these, those are the isn't people. That ironic? Yeah. Like, isn't it's that ironic. ironic thing? Did it strike you as it? Because here, here you're a guy, you're a dirt road guy that worked at a fucking gas station at Scrapped and was able to afford those tickets. And you're like, you're looking around and like, well, huh, what's that like? Well, it was the first time I ever put on a sport jacket to go see a Bruce Springsteen event. I <laughs> know <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, there are people, there are people in jackets and ties, and I mean, because yeah. it's Broadway, Broadway on a Saturday yeah. night, right? Uh, yep. And that was, uh, my wife said, yeah, you should wear a sport coat. Uh, okay. And, uh, but there were very few people dressed like you would see dressed at a regular Springsteen concert. Um, but it was very male dominated in the audience, just like a, a Springsteen concert. Going to a Bruce Springsteen concert is almost like going to a hockey game in terms of the ratio of sort of middle-aged white men. And he never really crossed over racially, despite Clarence being in the band. I mean, he, he, it's a very, very white audience it's, and a very, very male audience. And it's really interesting. Whereas Petty doesn't have it, like you were saying. You go to a Tom Petty well, concert, there's a lot of women. Uh, yeah. And even a Bob Seger concert, there's way more women than at a Bruce Springsteen concert. You, you're, I yeah, you about you're right. Yeah, I want to ask you about hip hop and just, you know, so a guy like me who knows very little about it, where should I start? Yeah. So who should I listen to? What do you do you want to listen as like a, to as to enjoy it or do you want to listen as uh like to study it? You know, like I think I think some of the more accessible rap is early Tribe Called Quest. De La Soul, um, Dre, Dr. Dre. But I think important rap to listen to, like, uh, I would I, I would kind of send you on on a mid-90s uh, regional gangster rap journey where it's like these, these are the, – the cool, here's the cool thing about rap, um, especially once you, when, you're, when you're pre-internet – you would you could really hear the voice of a region um, more so than with rock and stuff like that uh, because they're 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 actually rapping is like talking you're talk rhyming you know you're rhyme talking or whatever the fuck it is so like um, that's what's kind of cool about hip hop in in the nineties and I'm saying in the nineties because they broke away from the Back in the day, it was like that kind of a cookie cutter. Not, I don't mean in the, they were just early. It was early on, and they had that New York sound. Everyone had the New York sound, and then into the '90s, all these people started developing their own sounds and their own styles, and that's what's really interesting. Like you can go around 
and listen to gangster rap and local rap from different regions and hear what the city is talking about, hear their slang, hear their accents, hear, see the things that they value. Uh, and that's what I would do. I would tell you, I would take you on a tour. I'd tell you to go get a ball and MJG, UG that's from Memphis, UGK from, uh, from Texas, ghetto boys from Texas, poison clan from Miami, uh, E 40, from the Bay, Brother Lynch Hung or Sibo from in in the uh, Dayton family from Flint, and you, you would hear these. They're you know it's extremely violent, but you get to hear it's almost like a, a snapshot in time of what a region sounds like, and that's what you don't get in rap nowadays because of the internet. It has kind of homogenized everything. New Yorkers sound like they're from down south. Uh, down south cats are using the fucking robot throat, the auto tune. Like you know, everybody sounds like everybody. They're it, they're just trying to monetize. It's uh, it's less about rap and it's just more about a product. So I would tell you to go to the '90s. To me, that is the golden era. Okay, all right. I've got a and I, I know very and, very little about it. It's you know, like, and the, and the really cool thing about rap too is, if you take it one step further, if you just go one one layer below and listen to the sample, find out what the sample is, then go listen to the sample, like it will open up. It's you know, rap has helped. I, I grew. My, I'm a, I'm from a musically diverse family, but like it really, like just. Look into the samples. You, you'll start listening to jazz. You'll start listening to old soul, old rock. It's all over the place. I mean, Ghetto Boys, you know, they were sampling Pink Floyd uh, and Skinnerd. You know, one of my favorite songs samples Sweet Home Alabama. Like, it's fucking awesome. So, yeah, you know, I don't know if rap's going to be for you. Like, it's, it's, it's almost like you train your ear for it. And if your ear's not trained, it's just going to sound very aggressive. Well, I've heard, you know, I've heard snippets of it here and there, but it, it, it really, to me, it seems like it reflects the artist's background and, you know, the working class culture in in a different way from some of the music I've grown up listening to. And so I'd like to broaden my uh, horizon and try to, but, but it's such a, it's such an overwhelming category of music to listen to yeah so, and especially I, like I, the guys i just gave you like the guys i just gave you barely ever show up on lists you know of the best of lists you know what i mean uh right. you know the obvious one would be Pac, tupac to go check out and he you know what you know what's interesting about Pac is he was really he um was never really did gangster rap and i'm throwing up the quotation marks but he did rap for gangsters like he he did this really reflective, uh, introspective music that like cats in the streets really identified with, and that was what was so interesting about Tupac. Um, while those those last group of people I gave I, I gave you, um, you know, were talking about gangster actions, stuff that they were doing, stuff that was being done. Pac was talking about how one felt while that was happening. And the insecurities of he, he there's a line that always struck me. He said, uh, "Lately, I've been really wanting babies, so I could see a side of me that wasn't always crazy." 
Um, and I, I, I think that's poignant. You know, it's like it's, you're talking about the you're talking about a loss of innocence and just trying to see to to see yourself or something else as innocent again. And so, so many of us that was that was taken from us, and we didn't get to choose. It, it almost makes yeah. I hear what you're saying, and I think to me that line suggests I want to feel compassion for someone I've had, you know, a role in creating, and uh, you know, uh, get outside of myself a little bit. It's the fascinating thing about music. You can hear it, and it it, it hits you differently sometimes than uh, certainly than other people, but it hits you differently than uh, you might have been hit when you listened to it last week. <laughs> that's right. That's right, and that's and that's that's the power of a song, isn't it? It's the power of a song. It's the power of lyrics combined with music or a beat. And, you know, when we're writing our books, we have to try to make them lyrical and, and, but we don't have the, we don't have the background, we don't have the music to go along with it. So we're, we're trying to have power, have impact and reach people and be storytellers without the music. And it's definitely different. It's, it's, I think it's harder in some ways, some ways it's probably easier in some ways it's harder. I think, um, I think nowadays it's harder to have impact with the book than it is to have a song have a song um just just by the way that simply by the way that we consume the music you know you're able to attach all these uh, like actions with the song that's happening you know what you're doing and it, the song becomes bigger than what it is and it's repetitive and you're singing it and it gets ingrained in your, it gets ingrained in you while a book, unless you're reading it over and over again, you like, you read it, it may or may not hit you. And then you go on. And that's to me, that's the hard part, you know, especially nowadays. Shit, man. Like my, my audience, it's really hard to convince them to buy a book. They don't read, you know, I'm trying to sell books to the hood. It's, it's tough. They're buying them, but fuck, dude, I really got to, I really got to fight. Like, hey, man, this is worth you checking out. And Before I think you... your book, uh, yeah, it's accessible to that that uh, demographic in a way because you have the, the memoir is divided into so many chapters, and it's so many self-contained yes. contained stories. So you can spend ten, fifteen minutes you know, between uh, subway stops on your way home from work or something like that and and get into it and uh, then, you know, pick it up again and not have to remember, okay, what did these characters do? Uh, whereas with a, with a classic novel, that's what you have to, you have to fight it's against. To, you know, am I, right, am yeah. I going to, you're either devoting eight to 12 hours to this or you're not, right? That's right. My publisher, uh, Tyson, we, I just did a fucking little panel on the memoirs. And one, I didn't know my shit was a memoir. I really thought it was essays, but I'm like, all right, dude, I guess it's a memoir. But um, and I was talking about the fact that I wasn't trained to write, so I didn't really know what the fuck I was doing. And I just wrote how I knew how to write, which is small, these small vignettes and little essays. 
and uh, my me not knowing what I was doing actually lent to the times where this is a this is an ADD generation where it's like what's next, what's next, what's next, and I was able to just kind of slide right in there. Um, how has your book been being received? Are people are are people hearing what you what you want them to hear? Is uh, do you think they get it? You know, I, I think uh, I think for the most part they do. So I tried to write in a style that would be accessible to people who've never read a novel. Like my my father's first novel he ever read was mine and his only novel. Uh, yet I also tried to write. Uh, in a way that highly educated people could relate to and appreciate, and, and it would be artful. So I included, you know, a couple of poems, a couple of newspaper stories, to help right. tell the arc of the journey of the protagonists, you know, the father and the son, uh, at that particular point in the journey. And I also made it relatable, so it's historically accurate from the late 60s to the to the early 1980s. So the father and son, for instance, are sitting around and and uh, listening to Richard Nixon's resignation speech in August of '74, when uh, you know the country was really going through, in a way, maybe what we're going through now, which is a very tumultuous time. People don't know what's going to happen. There's some fear. There's obviously different kinds of fear now, but then it was, you know, our, uh, our president is going to be presumably indicted impeached, uh, you know, all of his top people, I mean, his top two people had been convicted. Uh, and you know, there's so many, there was just political corruption at the highest levels from our leadership in this country. And, uh, then there was the smooth transition of power. So in, and, uh, you know, and so you wonder if your leaders are corrupt and they're on the take, why can't I go shoplift? Why can't I cut corners? Right? Yeah. I mean, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon's defense basically was, I got caught what everybody else is doing. Well, how do you live a moral life when that's the moral standard? I was born in '77, so I'm like post Nixon, and there was we we were, and I still am, incredibly um, cynical because of this. Uh, I. I to have an I have an extreme distrust for the people in charge because of this, um, and and that's why I find it so alarming that people are up in arms about every every last scandal, like oh well, he did this, he did that, he did this, she did that, she did this, and in my, in my brain like didn't you see they all do this? They've been doing this. Like we've exposed it in the seventies and it's still going. You think it just went away? Like no, it probably got even worse. Um, so, so it, I, I, it's funny that even like stuff that happened before I was born, it uh, it affected. A, I I feel like a damn near a whole generation's view of looking at the government. Right? I was like, all right, yeah, that's what this is. You know, my old man was like the anti fucking. My dad was like the anti government hippie. My mom was the no nukes hippie. Um, but. I've never voted Same for a winner yet, dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Same in my job. I was born in '60, and and we were just, uh, you know. So I kind of sometimes felt like, God, I never really got to. I was too young for 
uh, Woodstock. I was, you know, nine then. I was too young for some of the countercultural protests. I was too young for the LSD experiments in the mid '60s. <laughs> but uh, right. as and the '70s were a pretty undistinguished era in American history, and it ended with that tinny disco music. <laughs> so, this is Rare Bird Radio. Thanks for listening. Jim McDermott, Bitter is the Wind, debut novel. Jude Angelini, Hummerbird. Jim, it was really nice chatting with you, man. It was wonderful, Jude. All the best.